evening. Welcome to episode four of Straight Talking English, season two, the Shakespeare season. This episode is following straight on from episode three, which was a summary and some good readings of the plot. So hopefully you now know what's going on in this play. This episode is focusing on some of the themes and images that come up again and 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 again forever in this play. As I always say, I am your host, Catherine. I am a qualified English teacher and I really like Shakespeare and I'm really enjoying researching this actually. If you want to research it for yourself, it honestly doesn't take that much work to get a good understanding of this beast. So I really recommend it. Do it as a project. What? Let's get cracking. One of the things this play is about is light versus dark. This imagery of light is good, darkness is bad. People call on darkness to hide their evil actions from the world. Stars, hide your fires, says Macbeth. Like, don't even look at what I'm doing. Weirdly, the best source I found for any kind of scholarly response to this is a 1904 essay by a guy called A.C. Bradley. And it's absolutely brilliant. For the record, I found this in a charity shop in Blackheath. And a lot of what I'm drawing on is the casebook series of the Shakespeare plays. So I'm going to share with you what Bradley said because this is amazing. Darkness, we may even say blackness, broods over this tragedy. It's remarkable that almost all the scenes which once recur to memory take place either at night or in some dark spot. The vision of the dagger, the murder of Duncan, the murder of Banquo, the sleepwalking of Lady Macbeth, all come in night scenes. The witches dance in the thick air of a storm or black and midnight hags receive Macbeth in a cavern. The blackness of night is to the hero a thing of fear, even of horror, and that which he feels becomes the spirit of the play. The faint glimmerings of the western sky at twilight are here menacing. It is the hour when the traveller hastens to reach safety in his inn and when Banquo rides homeward to meet his assassins. The hour when light thickens, when night's black agents to their prey do rouse, when the wolf begins to howl and the owl to scream, and withered murder steals forth to his work. Macbeth bids the stars hide their fires that his black desires may be concealed. Lady Macbeth calls on thick night to come, pulled in the dunnest smoke of hell. The moon is down and no stars shine when Banquo, dreading the dreams of the coming night, goes unwillingly to bed and leaves Macbeth to wait for the summons of the little bell. When the next day should dawn, its light is strangled and darkness does the face of the earth entomb. In the whole drama, the sun seems to shine only twice, first in the beautiful but ironical passage where Duncan sees the swallows flitting round the castle of death and afterwards, when at the close, the avenging army gathers to rid the earth of its shame. Of the many slighter touches which deepen this effect, I notice only one. The failure of nature in Lady Macbeth is marked by her fear of darkness. She has light on her continually and in that one phase of fear that escapes her lips even in sleep, is the darkness of the place of torment of which she speaks. Well, cheers, Bradley, mate. That is a lovely summary, far better than I could have put it. And we've got to think for a second about where this would originally be, be staged. Think somewhere about the size of a school hall. After dark, middle of January, no lights outside because no electricity, lit by candlelight, very dim, very small, probably stuffy, intimate space. That's where it is first performed. And as well as displaying this contrast between good and evil, and the question about what is good, what is evil, it's also used to almost give premonitions. When something gets darker, well, you know, it's getting worse worse. So as far as I can tell, the only bit where Banquo and Fleance talk to each other, 
guess father-son relationships are a bit different. It says, how goes the night, boy? The moon is down. I have not heard the clock. And she goes down at 12. I take it. Tis later, sir. This is not a deeper meaningful. Like, I feel like if that's your only son, you should be taking this opportunity to be like, I love you, grow up well. Banquo has this vision of the future. He says there's husbandry in heaven. Their candles are all out. Restraining me, the cursed thoughts that nature gives way to in repose. And it's what Bradley alluded to, this bit where he's going off to sleep. But think a little bit more about star-crossed lovers, Romeo and Juliet, right? Stars equal destiny. Light equals faith. Destiny, doing the right thing. Darkness is falling off like the edge of the cliff, falling off destiny's reach. It's also about heaven and hell. Of course, the dumbest smoke of hell. And the further that hellish deeds are committed, because remember, anti-treason is the crime of trying to kill the king. The king is God's representative on earth. Therefore, treason or treasonous thoughts will get you sent straight to hell. Anything that's hellish, evil, is dark. Think about sleep as well. Sleep is something that comes up again and again and again. And it's really interesting because it shows the symbiotic relationship between Macbeth and Lady Macbeth because it kind of seems like they're two sides of the same coin. And it's not me that actually said that. I'm quoting Sigmund Freud very loosely because I've left my book upstairs and I can't be bothered to go get it. But a little bit later, I think three episodes time, I'm going to get into this further because he says Macbeth has murder sleep. Like I can't say I can't pronounce amen. I'm ruined forever. But he does sleep and actually he doesn't really have any problems after that. But actually it's Lady Macbeth's sleep that's disturbed and she can't sleep. This idea of sleep and rest representing their power shift as it goes through is just fabulous. It's a lovely metaphor. It's a lovely way to show this link between them it also draws a line between the first bit and the next bit of the play so up till the murder lady macbeth is in it a lot but then the second she stops doing the murder second the murder's done she doesn't really do anything else we get this report at the end that she's killed herself and she's only in one scene she fades right out when Macbeth's power is low he can't sleep when he can sleep his power is high so it's all kind of linked together we gotta think as well about things which are linked together like in the great chain of being woo that is a smooth transition you gotta give me credit there because one thing that comes up quite a lot is the idea of natural and unnatural chaos and order the supernatural and the natural world and don't forget for jacobeans it's the same thing if the world is natural if things are the way they should be then things are in order things are in their hierarchies the second the hierarchy is disrupted the great chain is broken then all events are unnatural and indeed the doctor at the end who i'm like i don't i don't really think he qualified to be honest if i went to the doctor and he said 
unnatural deeds do breed unnatural troubles. I'd be like, what are you accusing me of? Like, I've twisted my foot at the moment and messed up my tendon. And if he said, like, it's your unnatural deeds, like you were rude to your dad and now your foot hurts. I'd be having some questions. I'd be writing a sternly worded letter. But this is where it touches on masculinity and femininity, which I felt deserved their own episodes. But whenever something is disrupted, it makes it unnatural. And therefore, once that is broken, anything can happen. We've even got Lady Macbeth saying, take my milk for gall. Something as completely impossible as swapping breast milk and stomach acid, because that's essentially what she's saying, is possible. She says, unsex me here. Like some magic power can literally just go, bing, you're a man. Which again, fact I learned, only a couple of hundred years before this play was written, was a widely held belief that a woman could transform into a man spontaneously if she was making love with a gentleman and he was too enthusiastic and then she would find herself transformed into a man. I love that fact. I love that fact. I do. I do share that with people at just really strange moments. As you can tell, I am a hoot at parties. The fact is the whole world is going wrong. The second the murder is committed, just everything goes wrong. Nothing in nature is in balance anymore. Ross, who, like, there's so many characters in this who just show up for, like, a paragraph and then go away again. And, like, I reckon you could do this in half as many characters. But anyway, Ross is randomly talking to an old man at the start of Act 2, Scene 4. And he says... This sore knight has trifled former knowings. Like, I've seen some weird stuff in my life. I've seen some things, man. But last night is the worst. And Ross says that you've seen the heavens as troubled with man's act threatens his bloody stage. By the clock it is day, and yet dark night strangles the travelling lamp. Is it dark's predominance or the day's shame that darkness does the face of earth entomb when living light should kiss it? Oh wait, it's dark and light again! Wow, recurring image. So Ross is asking, but shouldn't it be daytime by now? Why is it still dark? Like even the sun rising is impossible because of the evil. Like the old man says it's unnatural, even like the deed that's done. He means like it's unnatural like people's actions, but it's a little bit on the nose. It's a little bit, you know, breaking the fourth wall. On Tuesday last, a falcon towering in her pride of place was by a mousing owl, hooked at and killed. And Duncan's horses, beauteous and swift, the minions of their race turned wild in nature, broke their stalls, flung out, contending against obedience as they would make war with mankind. Tis said they ate each other. They did so, to the amazement of mine eyes that looked upon it. So all the proof that natural and unnatural things are happening because of this darkness which is descended include a hawk, a falcon being eaten by a small owl, and some horses breaking out of their stalls and eating each other. Well, okay, okay, if I saw a horse cannibalising another horse, especially since I live in South London and that was outside my house, I, you're right, there'll be a lot of questions about how natural things are around here. But it's interesting, because as well as the dark and light and the shifts between night and day, we also have this thing about time. Because 
Time, this is a weird play, just like Romeo and Juliet. If you think of it chronologically, the whole thing happens in seven days. But it can't because there's no way that Malcolm could escape to England, get his army, come back, be ready. So it's just like Othello and Romeo and Juliet, as I said. Shakespeare plays with our perception of time. It is really weird. The one really cool thing I found out in the course of my research for this was the idea of equivocation. This is a crime. It is literally a crime and a buzzword in Jacobean times. It means being two-faced. Being two-faced was a crime in public. So any time you have said the loud part and the quiet part, any time you've said, oh, that's a beautiful haircut, and then in your head you've been like, if it was on a warthog, that is a crime. Everybody pretty much lies in the play, either to themselves or about something. This is a play full of looking one way, doing something else. Be not flower serpent i have like such a block on this quote i really do my friend tried to test me on uh, Macbeth quotes last year and i got really frustrated and just shouted snaky flower at him but the point is snaky flower don't be the flower be the snaky underneath that is that is obviously the most important bit but the point that we always gloss over, no one teaches this bit, is the stupid Porter. Right, a lot of Shakespeare stuff is written where, like, it would be stand-up, but someone else has written it in later. So I always kind of thought that that was how it was supposed to be. And when I've seen stuff at the Globe, it's been like that. But the old man is clearly referencing and making it clear to the audience that equivocation, being two-faced and lying, is the crime and it's linked to hell which is linked to the dark and light yeah he said knock knock who's there in the other devil's name faith here's an equivocator that could swear in both the scales against either scale who committed treason enough for god's sake yet could not equivocate to heaven oh come in equivocator like everything there is the entrance to hell the entrance to lying and it comes back again when lady macbeth hears the knocking at the end of her last scene that's the knocking at the door of hell that's satan coming for her because she knows her time is up let's talk about blood you know like you do it's a friday night when i'm recording this who wouldn't enjoy a lovely discussion of blood Unrelatedly, do give blood if you're over 18 and you're allowed to. It's especially important, particularly if you are black or of minority ethnicity, because apparently that's the shortest supplies they have of blood and bone marrow. But referring back to Bradley's essay, because the thing about blood comes up again and again and again. And Bradley says it cannot be an accident that the image of blood is forced upon us continually, not merely by the events themselves, but by full descriptions, and even by re reiteration of the words in unlikely parts of the dialogue. The witches, after their wild appearance, have hardly quitted the stage when there staggers onto it a bloody man gashed with wounds. His tale is of a hero whose brandished steel, smoked with bloody execution, carved out a passage to his enemy and unseamed him from the nave to the chat. And then he tells of a second battle so bloody the combatants seemed as if they meant to bathe in reeking wounds. 
and there Bradley goes, what metaphors? I, I honestly just feel like he has like a monopoly rich man life and is like eating a crumpet. What dreadful image is that with which Lady Macbeth greets us almost as she enters when she prays the spirits of cruelty so as to thicken her blood that pity cannot flow along her veins. What pictures are those of the murderer appearing at the door of the banquet room with Banquo's blood upon his face, of Banquo himself with 20 trenched gashes on his head, or blood bolted and smiling in derision at his murderer, of Macbeth gazing at his hand and watching it dye the whole green ocean red, of Lady Macbeth gazing at hers and stretching it away from her face to escape the smell of blood that all the perfumes in Arabia would not subdue. The most horrible lines in the whole tragedy are those of her shuddering cry, yet who would have thought the old man to have so much blood in him? Is not only at such moments these images occur, even in the quiet conversation of Malcolm and Macduff, Macbeth is imagined as holding a bloody scepter. Scotland is a country bleeding and receiving every day a new gash added to her wounds. It's as if the poets saw the whole story through an ensanguined mist, and if it stained the very blackness of the night, when Macbeth, before Banquo's murder, invokes the night to scarf up the tender eye of the pitiful day, and to tear in pieces the great bond that keeps him pale. Even the invisible hand that is to tear that bond is imagined as covered with blood. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, you've got to really think, take it back to the start about thinking about the connotations of blood. It's vital, it's necessary, but it's also your place in society. When Macbeth is giving, is not fleance, giving um, Malcolm and Donalbane the news that their father has died, it's the very source of their blood. The blood is the identity as well as your physical being, and it stains. And let's face it, in London streets, with Smithfield Market, with like the inner city abattoir and people just getting stabbed left, right and centre. People are going to be familiar with this horrible image of blood. And even the idea that blood is thicker than water, and the idea of like loyalty coming from your blood. Lady Macbeth initially is just like, blood isn't important. A little water will clear us of this state. And the little, it's kind of cute. But by the end, the water can't scrub away the blood. Her guilt is still on her. She's screaming like, out damn spot. And of course, it's linked to violence. It's linked to vengeance. Blood will have blood. The repetitions highlighting it, bringing it to life. And it reminds me of that Bible thing, like an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Which, okay, I mostly know from uh, Nick Cave's song, The Mercy Seat. But anyway, it's a saying. This idea that vengeance will come back. It will come back to haunt you. Especially when Macbeth is wading into blood. I am in blood, stepped in so far. The idea that everything he spilt is just like a really gross swimming pool that he's wading in. Oh, it's so fabulous and so dark like when you ask people pretty much the one thing they come up with for a theme is ambition ambition like okay cool we know it's about ambition and in fact it's the vaulting ambition that overleaps itself it's acknowledged that there is a danger like it's people who are ambitious act without thinking it through according to Macbeth this idea of vaulting like it's a physical exertion it's a sport it's something you work towards again because everything leaks together it's unnatural because you respect your place in the great chain of being heck yes and it's not like there haven't been 
been ambitious people. A lot of people when they well a lot of courtiers when they realised Elizabeth I was, was on the way out dashed up to Scotland to get their foot in the door for King James and the idea that ambition being a good thing is kind of just sort of emerging. We have this inversion as well. Lady Macbeth should know that for a Jacobean, ambition is a bad thing. Knowing your place, okay, wanting your family to do well, but knowing your place in society is the good thing. But she acknowledges, like, art not without ambition. She's inverting it again. She's making the bad things good and the good things bad. But, and this is where it's interesting, ambition is tied to clothing. So, fun fact, Henry VIII passed a law banning anyone to laugh at his clothes because your clothes are an extension of your own identity. So if you wear someone else's clothes or you want to wear your clothes, that's symbolic of wanting to take their identity, wanting that station. This comes up again and again and again. Initially, Macbeth is, feels like he's dressed in borrowed robes when he's first given the title of Thane of Cawdor. Like, oh, I'm going to have to give this back. This isn't for me. Like, it's temporary. But then Banquo instantly acknowledges, well, like a page later, that new honours come upon him, like our strange garments, cleave not to their mould without the, the aid of use. So once you've got the new garment, once you've got used to it, it's really good. So go for something new, even if it's uncomfortable at first. It will work out really well. People are drawing, people are a bit nervous though. Comment later on, a bit nervous about the new king. Lest our old robes sit easier than our new. The king's identity and his place are linked to clothing. Macbeth, Macbeth's ambition is linked to clothing. His costumes would be absolutely sumptuous, by the way, in a Jacobean production, because bits of Queen Elizabeth I's amazing wardrobe were cut up and repurposed as stage clothes. So they literally could have dressed him in the clothes of royalty. Well, slightly cut up clothes of royalty, but you got it. This is a really, I cannot emphasize this enough, a really complicated and fabulous play. In Shakespeare's life, this is the the biggest and best example of Shakespeare's later writing style. Because as I mentioned, he had this light sort of light-heartedness at the start. And this is the great one of the great tragedies which sums up where he is in his life. I do genuinely hope that if you're studying this or you're teaching it, or if you're just reading it for fun and listening to me for fun, that you are genuinely enjoying Macbeth, because I am. This is awesome. Next episode, I will return to you looking at all that may become a man a masculinity and the men of Macbeth straighttalkingenglish.com stra talking english on twitter tell your friends tell your family i did write a Macbeth revision guide first in a new series called chopping up shakespeare which is available on straighttalkingenglish.com and i'm halfway through writing my second of the context comics so if you are enjoying this series there will be revision guides to go along with it i look forward to speaking to you again soon for our episode on masculinity and have a lovely week